A quite remarkable book I hold in my hand, as Joe McCarthy used to say, for a wholly different purpose. And this is called Gay American History, Lesbians and Gay Men in the USA. And it is, uh, as it says below, a pioneering collection of turbulent chronicles starting new perspective on the nation's past. Crow the publishers. And my guest is the editor and the author. Um, it's, it's a gathering of documents and letters from the 15th century on. And Jonathan Katz is my guest and it's his work, and it deals with uh, just an idea from trouble, 1566 to 1966, the whole, in a sense, gay people, that is, m male homosexuals and lesbians, and as the subject, part two, treatment, 1884-1974, passing women, some women who passed as men of the American Revolution, the Civil War, Native Americans, Indians, and of course the subject of medicine men and shamans, and androgyny. Resistance, 1859 and 1972, and Love, 1779 and 1932. It's, it's uh, encyclopedic in nature, and yet it's a, a document. It's very rich indeed. Tells us about so much about ourselves, too, you might say. And We have been the silent minority, the silenced minority. Invisible women, invisible men. Early on, the alleged enormity of our sin justified the denial of our existence, even our physical destruction. Our crime was not merely against society, not only against humanity, but against nature. We were outlaws against the universe. Long did we remain literally and metaphorically unspeakable among Christians not to be named, nameless. To speak our name, to roll that word over the tongue, was to make our existence tangible, physical. It came too close to some mystical union with us, some carnal knowledge of that abominable ghost, that lurking possibility within. For long, like women conceived only in relation to men, we were allowed only relative intellectual existence, conceived only in relation to, as deviance from, a minority of, an abnormal and embarrassing poor relation. For long, we were a people perceived out of time and out of place, socially unsituated, without a history, the mutant progeny of some heterosexual union, freaks. Our existence as a long-oppressed, long-resistant social group was not explored. We remained an unknown people, our character defamed. The heterosexual dictatorship has tried to keep us out of sight and out of mind. Its homosexuality taboo has kept us in the dark. That time is over. The people of the shadows have seen the light. Gay people are coming out and moving on to organized action against an oppressive society. And so, Jonathan Katz, reading your introduction to the book, A Gay American History, I suppose in that opening passage, you really tell what the challenge is all about for the centuries. And I suppose of all species of the human race, you know, we think of blacks and of Indians oppressed and of, of women and of dissenters, political, of all, I suppose, the deepest fear um, in the majority of society is that aspect, isn't it? Well, it's possible for straight people, for heterosexuals, 
to um, act and uh, participate in a homosexual act. Anybody possibly could be homosexual. I'm not sure that everybody could feel it, but it's different. We're different in that respect from, from women. Our min my minority is different. And, you know, white people can't suddenly become black or... And I'm talking about that fear. Mm -hmm. that, that's why that machismo... Mm -hmm. that in fact, the most machismo of males, I suspect, are the most fearful. Yes, I think you're right. Yeah. We live in a very you know, sexist society, that's been said before. But um, I think I and gay people, we've experienced it in a very direct form. We've been beat up on the streets. Uh, and, you know, it's happening today. Even today? Yes, I just came from San Francisco, and uh, people, gay people are being beat up, and one was murdered. And in Omaha, Nebraska, somebody was murdered. But there is now a coming out argument. Your book, I want to ask you how you came about. One big question. Yeah. For years, I think, until recently, until the black revolution, the Indi Indian revolution, the women's, mm -hmm. and the gay, mm -hmm. all related. Mm -hmm. But, of course, your book relates them all. But I think, uh, what was I about to say? There was something on my mind. It was about the coming out now. Oh, I know what it was, I know. For years, I always felt that gay people whom I knew, uh, particularly middle-aged old ones, were very conservative and very establishment-minded. Mm -hmm. I said because of, they were closet, of course, mm -hmm. because of fear, I suppose. Mm -hmm. but is this true, most conservative-minded? Well, uh, I don't have any statistics yeah. about it, but what I did find in my research on lesbian and gay male American history was that there's a tradition of support from a few uh, significant leftists who uh, have either heterosexuals or uh, gay people who were on the left who supported gay rights very early. Uh, Emma Goldman, I found, uh, writes in her autobiography of having defended Oscar Wilde in the, eight, that would be 1895 after that sometime. And also in 1915, she writes about in Portland, Oregon, on one of her speaking tours, uh, about anarchism or something, bringing up the subject in a public lecture about homosexuality and how moved the gay people in the audience were and came up to her afterwards and said, this is the first time in my life I've ever heard anybody talk about me. I never had heard about uh, uh, us before. Yeah. And then Alexander Berkman, also an anarchist, um, uh, defended or uh, talks in his, auto, his but these autobiography were, but about But there weren't gay. these exceptions. These were exceptional people. I'm thinking even people of the left, politically mm -hmm. heterosexuals, mm -hmm. were afraid and looked down upon gay people. Mm -hmm. see, I, I, I think it was, it's much deeper. You're talking about quite remarkable people. A few people, yes. The left in general um, has been uh, very insensitive to the oppression of As the right, gay of course. People, as the right. I mean, there were no difference. Except that the, the left is supposed to be sensitive to different kinds of oppression. Um, I myself am a gay socialist, so um, I'm really angry about the treatment that uh, gay people have received at the hands of uh, leftist parties, etc. Now, the reason I'm raising this point, mm -hmm. because I, I had a feeling, this is just my own observation, because I've known a lot of gay men and gay women most of my life, mm. uh, friends of mine whom I admire very much, and a great many, I felt, of those I did not know, were quite conservative politically because of fear. Mm -hmm. That is, they were afraid to in any way offend officialdom because mm -hmm. of their own gayness, which they kept hidden mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. the closet. Well, I think I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Because of that, I was really surprised 
I mean, I think that's true. When you're in a part of an oppressed group, sometimes what you want is to join the establishment more than even somebody who hasn't been oppressed. That's right. I mean, there, that's among some certain women and certain black right. people. But um, what I was very surprised to find, for instance, that the man who founded the Mattachine Society named Henry Hay. Um, I should point out the Mattachine Society is one of the earliest of the gay societies. Yeah, the Henry Hay story is to me, um, in your book, is a magnificent one. Suppose you recount it. Well, this is a man who, at a gay party in 1948, conceived of the organization which um, was to become the Mattachine Society in about 1950. That's one of the earliest gay groups in America. And Henry Hay's background is really interesting. He had been a Communist Party member for 18 years, from the late 30s to till about the time of the early 50s. And uh, that's not what I expected to find when I started doing research on, on gay history. I mean, I didn't expect to find a, a really old radical uh, there because what I knew of the Mattachine Society growing up uh, in the 60s was that it was quite a conservative group and wanted to get gays into the army and things like that. And I was, I was against the war in Vietnam, and, and um, I, didn't, I, I didn't know that there were any such thing as radical um, gay people. So, I mean, he, Henry Hay, is one of these incredible people that I discovered in the process of my research. Also, I mean, I, we, I should mention that um, I, I was able to discover that the charter of the first known homosexual emancipation organization in America, which was founded in Chicago in 1924 by a man named Henry Gerber. And Gerber wrote letters about uh, this, uh, trying to found this group. And he was all, they were all arrested and all ended very quickly. But I was able to write to the state of Illinois and get the charter of this first gay liberation group in America. And there in the mail one day came this incredible document. It was like finding the Magna Carta or something. For this is fascinating. It was in Chicago then, in 1924. Mm -hmm. and the <laughs> Committee for Human Rights, it was called. It was called, yes. And that was modeled, and the name is taken. It's an exact translation of a German homosexual emancipation uh, organization which existed in Germany at the time. That was Magnus Hirschfeld's group, wasn't uh, it? That wasn't Hirschfeld's group, but Hirschfeld Magnus Hirschfeld was uh, a leader of uh, a different, the Scientific Humanitarian yeah. Committee. The reason I, I mentioned Magnus Hirschfeld because soon, in about a week, uh, my guest will be, one of my guests will be Christopher Isherwood, uh. a brilliant British writer whose new book is called Christopher and His Kind, and it's about himself. And he had met Magnus Hirschfeld in the pre-Hitler Germany, yes. and of course the Nazis. There was an interesting situation, that story in itself. Well, I just we should mention that uh, uh, most people don't know that there was a homosexual emancipation movement in Germany from 1896 mm -hmm to uh, 1930 when the Nazis did away with it yeah. completely and yeah. I never heard any word about it, yeah. although we're gay people are just beginning to uncover yeah. uh, its history. I want to stick, your book is historic, I want to stick yes. to Henry Hay. Okay. Well, no, let's come back to him in a moment. Okay. Remind me, because Henry Hay to me is one of the most gallant people I've ever come across, and he's in your book. His testimony before the House on American Activities Committee, and how he defied them, doubly, doubly, as a political dissenter and as a gay person, which is quite remarkable. But come to, you have stuff that astonished me in your book, and the trouble, Thomas Jefferson, believed that sodomy, is called, which is uh, sexual between people of the same sex, shall be punished by castration. Did Jefferson really believe that? Did he say that? Uh, yes, those are his words. He, Jefferson suggested a reform of the death penalty uh, for homosexuality in Virginia 
which was in force in the colonial period. So Jefferson, as a liberal, suggested that we should be castrated instead. And uh, if you were a woman involved, then you were supposed to have a hole cut through your nose. And so you'd be marked for life, I think. Ah, this is Jefferson. It's, yeah, this is our wonderful liberal. Well, of course, we know about Jefferson. the slaves, but this is a new aspect. He, he was liberal in many ways indeed, but I said, really indicates to me the degradation and the fears that gay people have been subject through the centuries. Yes, what struck me, for instance, is that I was able to find uh, documents uh, indicating that there were executions of five uh, men for sodomy during the colonial period. I mean, executions, killing us yeah. for homosexuality. Uh, the death penalty for homosexuality, that shows the depth of hate, I think, yeah. and the length of time uh, that, that our persecution has been going on. But there is, of course, and then we know there's a new biography of uh, Robert Frost coming out in which he was uh, not too nice a person in many ways. Marvelous, not too nice a person. And here you speak of the persecution of Stark Young, a brilliant critic, who I assume was gay, by Robert Frost, who was violent. Here he come macho again. Yeah. He actually had Stark Young, who was the brilliant drama critic, fired, didn't he? He tried to, yes, and, and uh, Young eventually was fired, I think. Um, this was at uh, a college, and it's an example of um, t uh, gay men getting in trouble as teachers, uh, which is something, you know, in a certain form of employment, which was, which gay men have had, and, and lesbians have had trouble in um, keeping their jobs, you know, when they're teachers. Yeah. But Henry Hay, this is, mm -hmm. uh, when this is the time of McCarthyism, uh, Henry Hay is called before the House, and you should recount this, because it's okay. marvelous, it's a marvelous triumph of his wit and gallantry. Yeah. Well, Hay had been a communist uh, for 18 years, as I said before, and in um, 1955, I think it was, he was called before the House on American Activities Committee in Los Angeles, and they were investigating um, communists under every bed, um, you know, part of the witch hunt era, and homosexuals were also being uh, persecuted and witch hunted at the same time. So here was Hay, who was both a communist in his background and a homosexual, and the man who had founded and conceived uh, the first homosexual emancipation organization. So he thought he was really going to get it, you know, from them. He was very worried. He went to a number of leftist lawyers who were defending the uh, leftists being called before uh, HUAC, and each one of them turned him down, I'm sorry to say. They would not defend um, a queer, as it was said by one of them. So finally, he found one man, a leftist lawyer, who did defend him. And it was just a, f just a short time before he was to appear. And Hay describes his appearance before the House on American Activities Committee. He was prepared to really, um, he has, he showed me, sent me um, documents that he had, notes he had made at the time of what he was going to say if they asked him about his gay activity as well as his communist activity. And he was going to defy them uh, and say, this, you have no right to ask me about this. This is my own business and you are the people who are un-American really. And, and what happened was they were so stupid 
that they didn't know anything about his homosexuality or his gay organizing. Their research and investigations mm. only dated to an earlier yeah. period. But so I, I'm thinking, yes. I'm thinking, pardon me, about what he had in mind if they were going to ask him, yes. are you ever have been a homosexual? Yeah. And he was going to reply, <laughs> and this is the part. He's, the statistics show that the armed service analysis estimate GI prevalence 13 to 15 percent gay, one out of every eight. One man, there are more than eight men on your committee, UAC, <laughs> he says. Could you answer a simple no to this question and be upheld despite the stacked barrages of innuendos, which you yourselves harass your witness? Could the president, could the chief justice of the Supreme Court, and he goes, since it's one out of eight, that's the Supreme Court is nine members, and the House Armed Services Committee had about nine. Was one of, and then well, he, did, he wasn't asked that question, and then comes the big one, and he put on the great act, as he says. Remember, he was nervous on, on naturally, and uh, what he said that just <laughs> threw the thing into a, a tizzy. <laughs> yeah. What, can you recount that? I, I, I don't remember. Oh, specifically. well, he so here. Would you want to read it? Well, you, which part? I was nervous to? when I got up there. It's a and long, this is the part. This is a long no, passage. Well, yeah. listen, I was nervous. I'll read part of it. Yeah. What I did was kind of dirty, he says on the witness stand. Uh, I think this is real gay consciousness, if you'll forgive me. I was gabby as all hell. <laughs> I think they really thought they were going to get a bit of information. What happened was the attorney for the committee got a little confused with my gab and asked me if I were a member of the party, the Communist Party. I said no. And that's when the shit hit the fan. The committee member... He wasn't a big man. He was a very chunky sort of man. He got apoplectic, and he stood up, holding on the edge of his desk. He stood up in such a way that he pushed this huge oak desk over on its face, clunk. He looked like the Commandante from Don Giovanni rising up out of the floor. He was apoplectic, and he spits out, Why did you quit out in the hall before you came in? He was purple and swelling in the neck. Uh, that was when I let off my crack. I'm not in the habit of confiding in stool pigeons or their buddies. Now, their buddies, of course, was the committee, <laughs> and that could have put me in contempt. Everybody asked, what did he say? Did you catch what he said? They couldn't make me repeat it, and the poor little closet queen who was transcribing couldn't find it, and the reams of paper ribbons jumbled on the floor around him. My attorney just about had gone through the floor. He said, my God, I can't get out of this one. I just hope to God they don't find the transcript. The people in the courtroom were doubling up with laughter. Honey, one of the committee members said, I know what the witness means by his remarks. I suggest we dismiss him. And that was it. When I got down from the stand, he says, I went over the bailiff to sign myself out. You know, my fingers were locked together so tight I couldn't get them apart. He got my fingers loosened up. And that's what he, of course, suddenly he hit something. That deep, deep fear in all macho guys. Yeah. I was very moved by that part when he says he was so nervous doing this that he couldn't sign his name to sign himself out because he was so fearful, yet yeah. he did defy them. He fought, struggled against his fear. I'd also like to point out that, that uh, what you just read was based on an oral uh, history interview that I did with Henry Hay, and I was working on a shoestring budget of no, zero, pretty, very little money. And so a friend who worked for, um, shall we say, a very large monopoly in this country took me to a little office of this monopoly, and I was able to speak to Hay for about an hour and a half and do this interview where I got mm. him to talk about mm. all this material. I mean, it's, it's a remarkable piece oral, of work. Oral, you've done oral, his, oral history yourself, and I think it, is, it could play a, an especially important role in recovering uh, gay history for, for my people. 
Uh, by the way, you raised the point someone else had. I'm curious. That's an interesting challenge. Mm -hmm. Perhaps you could do, or I could. Uh, Maybe you could. Well, uh, is there a, an oral history? I mean, talking to a variety of people of all aspects, that's a good well, challenge. I did five. I included five in my book, uh, taped interviews with lesbians or gay men mm. whose uh, experience I thought was of some significance yeah. in gay American history. Yeah. There's one with Barbara Giddings, who founded one of the first uh, lesbian liberation Daughters groups. of Belitis. Yes, and that's in New York City, the first one there. And I did an, an interview with a young man who'd, be who'd been given shock treatment uh, by his parents in the South because, because he was gay, basically. I mean, and he described yeah. that whole process. Well, you have the second, the second chapter of your book, uh, section deals with treatment. Yeah. And you say shock. Here we come. By the way, are in your observations and findings, discoveries, you find parents now of gay young men or young women, uh, children. Do you find that they're more open now and freer, or is there still this terrible fear? Well, I think we have a long way to go before we're really liberated. Um, it's still very hard for gay women and gay men to come out. Um, but it's something that's very important in s in for us. Each individual has to do it their own way, I think. But for me, it's really changed my life and made me a much more um, contented or um, human person, I think. When did you come out? I mean, were you in the closet for mm -hmm. a long time? Yes, more than anybody else. So um, if it can happen to me, if you can be holding a book there with my name on it, it's an amazing feat. Um, I was, uh, I've been gay since I was 18, which is in 1956, but I didn't become, I didn't use my name in any public way as a gay person until I joined the gay movement in 1971, and I did a play called Coming Out, which was a documentary uh, based on gay history documents about lesbian and gay male life in America. So, uh, that's when I, the f on the first version of the script, um, I used a pseudonym, John Swift. So that's, <laughs> and I now look at that yeah. and I say, uh, well, I, what I realized when we started rehearsals was that I could not go ahead doing a gay liberation play called Coming Out and use a pseudonym. Yeah. <laughs> so I decided I'm going to use my name, that's it. And it resulted in, well, my mother read about my play in Village Voice and found out that her son was gay. And mother didn't know it till then. No, sh unfortunately, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to tell her before that and warn her that I was oh. going to use my name. So it was a shock to her to what find out. What was her reaction? She, in the, the morning that the play was to open, I got a telephone call about 10 o'clock in the morning, and it was my mother, and she said, is, is that you in the Village Voice? And I said, yes. And she said, are you a homosexual? And I said, yes. And she was very upset. And I, we had a long conversation. This was my first sort of coming out conversation with her. And I am sorry that she had to find out by reading about it. That was my lack of courage as in telling her but beforehand. But uh, I ended up in that telephone conversation saying to her, listen, this is the first time we've really talked to each other in 20 years about anything really of substance. And she said, and then she stopped in the middle of her, uh, of her being upset and said, yeah, you know, you're right, you know? And what's happened is, I just should say, there's been a lot of talking and confrontations and, and talking uh, since then. And in 1975, 76, she, uh, my mother helped me edit my book. She had many years experience as an editor. So she's come 
she, her consciousness has been raised yeah. a great deal, and she's talked to me about what it's like to be an old person in this society, too. So your mother, then, has grown. Yeah. And then you found out about her condition as an older person. Yeah. So, so here we have something going on, don't we? The relation. By the way, this is a key to your book, too. I, I, was, I was at a gay activist gathering the other night, and uh, many say, I asked, you know, is it a one-issue matter, just gay liberation, nothing else? And mm. a great many are saying, no, they see the connection now. The others say, old people, blacks, women, this is it. Different so groups, Native Americans. It is, is this popping? Well, I think more and more um, gay people, lesbians and gay men, are realizing that our oppression is part of a very larger oppression in this whole society. I mean, I, as a gay socialist, see um, you know, that we have a lot of problems with capitalism and different forms of exploitation taking place with, within this system. And I'm beginning to sort of come out as a gay leftist as well as um, a gay person. So, so I mean, uh, that takes a little doing, too. It's hard to do, uh, too, because I think people in the United States have really, since the McCarthy period, been brainwashed and made, if you say the word communist, or you say the word socialist or Marxist, people, their minds go blank and they don't hear what you're saying afterwards. But yet it is important to think about these things. And for that matter, say gay, too. But gay yeah. something else is added. So I must ask you this before we, before we take a break. Mm -hmm. The camp, you know, the word camp, by the way, that today is accepted as a certain kind of put down of art or lighter, is originally a gay word. I first heard it as a gay word mm -hmm. years ago, camp. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting how that becomes part of a beautiful people or a, whether it's a Warhol stuff or whatever it might be, wholly unrelated to substance and reality. The, the phrase out of the closet is becoming uh, into the, it's going into the English language. Yeah. Everybody is uh, like a politician is coming out of the closet, not as a gay person, but uh, as a, in support of yeah. um, environmental things or something. Well, wasn't camp really a, a gay word originally? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And then it became something involving pop art, uh, in a sense, you know, the, the, yeah. the pop popularization of, of theater, art, or music, one, you know, Camp, not, not to be taken seriously. I think that's the point, not to be taken seriously. Mm -hmm. There's yeah. a lot of humor uh, in camp humor, which is a form of gay male c culture, which is uh, involved in art of put-down. In the past, it's involved also self-put-down, I think. Yeah. I think there's elements in it, though, that can be used in a new creative way, maybe in a new liberated gay art. Yeah. I think that may be happening yeah. in the future. Jonathan Katz is my guest, and uh, the book, we just touched on one part of it. The book is Gay American History, Lesbians and Gay Men of the USA. It's, it's a pioneering work, indeed. Crowell of the publishers. We'll resume the conversation more about the book in a moment after this message. So resuming the conversation, we come to treatment. Uh, you, you implied we book of Jefferson <laughs> suggesting castration as punishment and treatment. Mm -hmm. And as a doctor, is here, uh, well, a Dr. Daniel suggests castration. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a tie-up. 1893, this was. This is a tie-up there. What I document in that section on treatment is the history of the treatment of lesbians and gay men by psychiatrists and psychologists. It's a history of horrors. Um, there is sexual surgery, for instance, castration, hysterectomy is documented, vasectomy, 
all to cure supposedly homosexuality. Ovary removal is discussed. Clitoris removal is discussed. Lobotomy is lobotomy used. Lobotomy was lobotomy it's actually used. suggested? Used? It's used. It's documented. It's By, there you have in here doctors Friedlander and Bonnet write mm-hmm. about this. One of one of the doctors, I forget which, is from Chicago even. So Who it's took part in it? You mean? Yeah, one of them. Yeah, I forget which one. Um, one of the, I'm not sure which name, but, but group therapy, psychoanalysis, aversion therapy, sh- shock treatment, electric and chemical, um, aversion therapy using electric shock, using uh, nausea-inducing drugs. I mean, this is what the medical profession uh, has done to us, and it's a shocking uh, history, which I, I think they should be made to held to, to account uh, for. But you know? is, is, is it altering today? Well. I think the struggle of gay people to assert our power to define ourselves is making beginning to make a difference. I've been told that such awful treatment forms aversion therapy is still being used on gay people, especially prisoners are subjected to um, gay prisoners are subjected to treatment which isn't really voluntary because they're in prison, mm. for instance. Uh, I mean, I myself went for therapy uh, ten years. Now it's 15 years ago, I guess, um, wanting to be straight. And I'd been brainwashed into thinking that there was something wrong with being gay. You know, just it's a value judgment. It's wrong to be gay. Gay is bad. So um, it was really an eye opening thing for me after many years of therapy to get involved in the gay movement and really have suddenly have the sense of gays not as some sort of psychological freaks, but as an oppressed group. It was is, a mind-boggling. Is there, a, since a good number of people deal with psychoanalysis, mm. has there been, what was the approach of, I guess no one psychiatrist is the same as another, but was there a general approach, uh, part of analysts in, in handling gay patients? Yeah, the well, there's, women? there's a lot of Freudian theory, which <coughs> is really impressive to both women and to uh, lesbians and well, I mean, gay men and lesbians, heterosexual women, I meant, as well as lesbians. Um, I mean, if Freudian theory talks about um, gays being arrested at a, at a uh, an immature stage of development, and that is really offensive to be told that, uh, and it's something that needs to be um, uh, resisted. It's interesting that, you know, it's always said that women are like children, black people are like children, mm-hmm. the natives of some countries mm-hmm. are like children compared to us civilized people. That's what those in power have always said. Us being, of course, the white, middle-aged, middle-class male. Mm. That's us. Mm. Certain ones especially who own um, large amounts of property have much more power than, um, than than, let's say, working class um, white males. I think that's an important class distinction to be made. In the coming out, there is, in the coming out, now there's more uh, all stereotypes are being broken, destroyed today, we know, or that at uh, gay bars elsewhere, that not simply the esthete, the aesthetic, delicate-looking person, but now we know hmm. uh, that gayness is in uh, heavy-set, blue-collar guys, working men, athletes, yeah. as well as the stereotyped, delicate person. Mm-hmm. Or some women that you would never imagine um, <coughs> Uh, were lesbians because there are stereotypes of lesbians as uh, butches, as yeah. tough, you know, um, who walk, you know, and uh, so that stereotype is being broken. Those are heterosexual stereotypes. I have a feeling that 
and that gay people ourselves have always known that that wasn't um, true, or at least known it somewhat better than us, than straight people have. You, now, your book also, the, the Gay History, deal, deals with history. You know, the passing women is a fascinating chapter here. Women who passed as men, some taking part in the American Revolution, some in the Civil War. I think it's really important that these were women who dressed as men, therefore they could work as men, uh, and they had intimate, passionate relationships with uh, other women. There's one who was discovered in 1914 in Chicago. As a matter of fact, she was, her, her story is written up in a Chicago newspaper called The Day Book in 1914. Mm. And she's a feminist, this woman. Uh, she was, uh, I interpret these women as being women who are early pushing beyond the very limited traditional female role. And that's exactly what this woman says she was doing. Yeah. In many cases, this dressing as men was, was expression of rebellion against being put down. That right. is the assigned, as you put it here, the assigned passive role, socially assigned as women. They affirm themselves as self-determined, active, assertive, and they, the irony is the situation. They could not, as women, but only as masquerading as males, mm -hmm. which of course is a horrendous irony here. Mm -hmm. Today, uh, lesbian feminists are challenging the whole male masculine feminine polarity and they're just asserting themselves as women they don't feel they have to and not at all feel they have to be dressed as men uh, to do that uh, they're, they're, they're women who are assertive but these earlier women who who couldn't see beyond the traditional masculine feminine mm. polarity were sort of trapped mm. within it in a way but yet they were very heroic for their time too and their stories read like um, short stories I mean they're really interesting I think Mary Walker. And uh, the well, sh she was uh, one of them. Uh, there's another. I was able to discover. Um, well, there are there are pictures of this woman, yeah. uh, Cora Anderson, who in the Chicago newspaper in 1914 revealed um, that she had lived a long time with another woman, and um, had married a uh, married actually married another woman as dressed when she mm. was living as a man. And I was able to find her marriage certificate too by writing mm. to the Milwaukee Board of Marriage yeah, License yeah. Bureau and uh, document that this really happened. And another aspect, here we come to Native Americans, gay Americans, now we come to the matter of ritual and special people societies, the shaman or the medicine men who were androgynous, perhaps. Mm -hmm. There's also a few uh, lesbian um, Native Americans also that are mentioned in that section. Um, this is, um, section contains uh, observations by missionaries, um, by uh, soldiers, uh, explorers, about various forms of homosexuality among Native Americans. Um, I think the most often talked about kind is the cross-dressing berdash, the person was called, although each tribe had a different name for this person, and they were, appear to have been very often homosexual and also perform, performed some ritual functions and were accepted in much more than in our own society, uh, as, you know, the way homosexuals are compared to the way homosexuals are treated in our own society. In fact, they were special people, were they not? I mean, mm. they had special status, I should say. Uh, yes, I think uh. so. The, the documents show that, yeah. Uh. Francis Parkman, the historian, writes of two guys in a romantic friendship, and this is implied here. This is in the history we've read, but without fully understanding it. Mm -hmm. It needs to be researched yes. and, and analyzed more, too, um, uh, but it's, it's, I just present some of the documents that are really interesting. 
And then we come to resistance. See, bit, bit your book is about resistance, 1859 to 72, and of course, we come to Walt Whitman. Yeah, I trace Walt Whitman's role as the kind of forefather of the homosexual emancipation movement. Walt Whitman in 1859, um, in a one of his poems declares his um, uh, decision to celebrate passionate relationships between uh, men. And he went on to develop a kind of embryonic sexual politics. Kate Millett has m popularized that concept today. But Whitman in 1859 was beginning to do that. And he had a direct extremely important influence on two uh, English homosexual emancipation pioneers, John Addington Simmons and Edward Carpenter. Carpenter, who I'm especially interested in, was a socialist, a feminist, and a gay liberationist in 1894. Think of that. He published a uh, pamphlet in a socialist printing press in Manchester, England, called Homogenic Love, and it was a defense of homosexuality. Where were you, uh, in, in your book, uh, your work, you just gathered, you, I'm thinking about your research, which mm -hmm. is quite remarkable, because so, so much of this is hidden indeed in the historical closet. Mm -hmm. I feel I've... How'd you dig it out? Here? Well, I feel I barely scratched the surface yeah. of, in terms of what is mm -hmm. there. How did I dig it out? I, at every, I became obsessive about finding my people's history. I was like a detective on the track of missing persons. Um, every, I was working very, very intensively, full time. I write down every single thing, every clue that I get on a three by five card, which I always carry with me. At parties, I spoke to gay people about what, what do they remember reading in college. And that's how I got on to a, a surprising number of things. I spoke to, I put an announcement in the gay press and I got some volunteer help that was very valuable and support from yeah. gay people. So was following up footnotes, tracking footnote to footnote in Havelock Ellis's early work on homosexuality. Yeah. Since you mentioned Havelock Ellis, uh, he did the introduction to a book that caused quite a stir indeed, and I remember it well. The Well of Loneliness by Radcliffe Hall, mm -hmm. dealing with uh, love, lesbian love. Do you remember the reaction to it in, when, when you, in your own time? Um, this nine, indeed I do, but you had, you, I'm, I'm, I'm going to tell you an incident yeah. that involves me, and I'm embarrassed if I will in a moment. Yeah. But in 1929, yeah. you have the, and the brouhaha that happened, how they, in a way, not too far moved from the battle about Joyce's Ulysses. Mm -hmm. You know, it is obscene literature, pornographic, and in Joyce's case, there was a great federal judge named Woolsey who offered the definitive decision, this is literature. And that the prurient don't like it, go. It was a mar but in this case, Well of Loneliness, which is not Ulysses, but a powerful book art artistically you know, accepted, yeah. at the same time dealt with this verboten theme. Yeah. It was also a defense of lesbianism, I think, in novel form. I think very often uh, lesbian literature and uh, the defense of lesbianism took the form of um, literature, poetry, mm -hmm. or novel, whereas males tended to write a polemical yeah. um, um, defense of I'm essays. thinking of a certain act of cruelty on my part. What? It was I was going to law school, and a guy and I, Gavin T. Walker, a friend of mine, went to the bar, Liberty <gasps> Inn, on, on um, Clark and uh, Ontario, and at the bar, and there were two pretty barmaids there, and uh, there was one, particularly, but dark brunette and page boy Bob, you know, and she liked Gavin T. Walker. And I was jealous, I guess. And then she said something to me. Oh, put me down about something. 
my where did I get that hat? Or did I? There's something very fine. I used to stay comb on my hair at the time, and she said this hat really has a certain kind of a, a pungent aroma to it, and something put down. I I was doubly defeated, and I said to her, out of the blue, have you ever read The Well of Loneliness? And she had she just was a working girl, and she just looked at me. She said, I think I'm being insulted, and I remember my sense of feeling bad because I didn't try to insult her in my own stupid way at that time, you mm -hmm. see. So there again, you see, I was putting her down as he, oh, As a Are you a dyke in short, yeah, you right. see? You pretty girl you didn't who likes my friend and not I me. Are you a dyke? You see, that's what I really was saying, you see, because I was put down. Therefore, she's got to be something wrong with her. Right. You think of all these macho guys. That's an so I never forgot that incident. That's an absolutely classic um, heterosexual male um, response, which has happened to many, many women who aren't lesbians necessarily. Uh, women friends have told me that they've yeah. been called well, I've, I've lesbians. Was, uh, I, I would assume very much indeed. I saw my friend Gavin T. Walker. But most men... Talk him, but I assume that she was not a lesbian. Yeah, right. But um, most men, I think, wouldn't, you know, admit their sexism. And that's really nice that you can... Admit it, talk about it. I mean, you don't have to roll oh, on the course. floor and guilt about it, which I don't believe in anyway. It doesn't help anybody. But uh, I think that's what we all need to do is sort of think about our sexism, think about ourselves, our own feelings, and about women, about lesbians. I mean, I meant about straight women and lesbians and gay men and blacks and, you know, all groups. Oh, I'm sure there's a strong sexist strain on all men. I'm, yes, I'm, me too. Oh, of course. Me too. I found it in myself. And I'm, in you too. Yeah, I found it. I'm, I've talked about mean, it in public. You toward women. Yeah, and not, I mean, I, it's not only in gay men that you find sexism. Let's point that out. I mean, because we've been blamed. It's been said that we don't like women, which is stupid. I mean, I think I'm more empathetic with women because of I'm course. a gay male in certain ways. I mean, I've sensed that in myself. And I'm a, I consider myself a male feminist and a militant one. But I was really shocked to find that I... It, when I finished my book and it was too late to do anything about it, I was shocked to find that I had not included quite as much lesbian material uh, as about material about gay men. And I really, this is my main criticism of myself hmm. in terms of the book. So we're really talking about awareness, are we not, of ourselves, all of us, men and women, uh, gay and straight. We're talking about awareness of all aspects of our lives and feeling. And I think that Gaiety. Gaiety is interesting. Gaiety. No, gaiety. Nice. I like that. Gaiety, although, unfortunately, none of us are that gay. Mm. I mean, about life, I'm talking about yeah. gay. Thing. But um, the gaiety, a gayness, is deep, deep theme, I think, that is almost the wellspring. And if that's sprung out, aware, people aware of themselves, no matter what they are, it opens up all avenues, I think. I think that the examination of uh, lesbian and gay male American history will uh, reveal as much about the whole American experience, American history, uh, as the examination of black history has, as the yeah. examination of women's history is beginning to. Why can't that be a gay roots on television? Oh, I'd Wouldn't love that be interesting? to do it. I'd Wouldn't that be an interesting series? You know, a book is a base, perhaps a series just on... Uh, I think you have a pretty good rating. Well, <laughs> I think so, but uh, what sponsor is going to sponsor it? And the sponsor. Oh, I think now. Oh, think absolutely. So? Oh, sure. I, I well, you find me a sponsor, and I I'll think write so. it. No. Okay. They, they, they're interested in one thing only. Money. Well, you got it. 
And that <laughs> profits. You got it. And a rating, and a rating does it. Okay, so we come to. No, I say that because um, my publisher is having getting me trouble. They're having trouble getting me on I'm television. Rams. Yes, they really? can't get me. I've only been on one nationally syndicated television show, a few local ones, but mainly. I can't get on television to talk about homosexuality. It's still a taboo subject. You can't get on. It's. <sighs> Remember Sergeant Matlovich? Mm -hmm. Remember story. Sergeant mm -hmm. Matlovich, the gay sergeant who mm -hmm. sued to remain in the army. He was a very remarkable guy. So he was here. He was telling me of my, that very morning, he was on a television show with a young uh, moderator, uh, straight male, mm -hmm. and uh, he's a marvelous guy, Matlovich. And one time, I think he he touched. The guy just touched him like that. I'd touch you right now. Mm -hmm. And the kid just pulled away like that. Mm. <laughs> I've done that uh, on a TV show yeah. that I was in in, on, in Los Angeles. I just went over yeah. and just reached over and touched the moderator to see what his reaction was. And he just jumped be. away. Uh, yeah, he did oh, pretty much. Okay. So, he laughed. Though, so there's, there's still a way to go, isn't it? Yes, we have yeah. far to go. Although in the last, uh, since 1969, we've come very far. Uh, we still have a long way yeah. to go. There's a big struggle for gay and people and others. Just a years ago, something you, you told me you heard about. Yeah. Uh, there was a gathering when Alderman, a very oh. marvelous guy. Yeah. Uh, what, what, what did you hear? Well, I, th no, I wish you would describe this, because I heard it was a wonderful role that you played in some gay support of gay people. Oh, well, it was nothing. It so happens that we have a marvelous Alderman who was fantastic, and he's uh, the best Alderman, Dick Simpson, Chicago. There was a rally, a picnic every year. This was at a big church, and Dick didn't know about this, because he'd have defied the, whatever. But whoever was in charge of the church, that priest says he would not allow gay people to take part in this picnic, you know, right. have a booth. Would they not allow it. Yeah. And uh, our alderman didn't know about it at the time, so he, he, he's, he would have defied it. But, and so some of the gay guys were, and women were picketing outside. And so I went out and I joined the picket line, naturally. And uh, then I, had a, I had, was supposed to make a talk up there. And so, of course, I brought up the subject. In the church? Yeah, I, I brought up something about Christianity. And uh, this is a church. Mm -hmm. And uh, what is a Christian? And uh, I didn't know that they uh, cut people. I didn't know that Christ cut people out of a community because they were different. I didn't know that certain people he called pariahs. I didn't know that because they were gay, you know. And so that was the thing. So, so your friends remembered that. Yes. And I went out and joined the picket line, of course. Somebody, somebody <laughs> on the picket line told me that you really let them have it when you got <laughs> up to give your speech that you said that you said to the, your audience in the church that you are the people who would kill Christ if he came back. Was it that strong? Well, it was rather strong. No, it wasn't that. It it wasn't was, if someone is different, a pariah, mm -hmm. uh, uh, I wonder what they'd have done at the Hill of Calvary that day. You know, since Christ himself was different, that is, I don't mean being different uh, from the established uh, mores of the day as far as his thought is concerned. And so I was, it was... It was, uh, yeah, I was a rather strong comment, I'd say. <laughs> I remembered that, didn't I? Yeah. All right. Mm -hmm. So we come to love. The last part of your book is, is love. And Margaret Fuller, whom I admire very much, the great feminist and brilliant, Margaret Fuller has a letter uh, in which she's speaking of the love of woman for woman. Yeah, she says, a woman can be in love with a woman and a man with a man. And so that's very interesting. Oh, that section also includes material about... Well, it's, it's about intimate relationships between people of the same sex and the feelings, the quality of the relationship. We're not only 
homosexuals. We're not sexual beings yeah. only, but affectional beings. Yes. And that's what I wanted to get at in that section through documents. And one of my most important research finds was some love letters to Emma Goldman by another anarchist woman um, named Almeida Sperry. Do we have time sure, for me to read? quote? You want to quote part Well, of I know part of oh, the letter by heart, which I could quote, and I find it really moving. Almeida Sperry in 1912 wrote a love letter to Emma Goldman that goes, I am a savage, Emma, a wild, wild savage, and they can't tame me with their puling conventions, their stinking houses, nor their damned religion. And it is the untamed part of me that loves you, because you don't want to put leading strings on it. If you did, I would tell you that you were a liar, and your book, Anarchism, is a lie. And it is the wild part of me that would be unabashed in showing its love for you in front of a multitude or in a crowded room. My eyes would sparkle with love, and I'd love to gaze upon you always, and every part of my body would be replete with satisfaction of its expression of love. God, 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 God. Wow, that's pretty passionate stuff <laughs> and beautiful. Yeah, I'm thinking of that and interesting analysis here, or thoughts about Herman Melville's works, whether it be Moby Dick, Queequeg, and Ishmael, or uh, certainly Billy Budd and a man who wanted to get him claggered, mm -hmm. as well as Captain Veer, too. Uh, it isn't a question of... See, it's not a question of one being homosexual right. or not there. Right. has something deep feelings of mm -hmm. the beauty of Billy Budd mm -hmm. and his goodness. Mm -hmm. Therefore, this mm, claggard got to get him as macho guy's fear of something yeah. in him. His repressed... Yeah. See, I think claggart is sort of presented as looking at Billy Budd with lavender eyes, with a kind of um, attraction. But yet, I think what's being pointed to is the repression, what the repression of homosexuality or homosexual feelings can do to a man like claggart in Billy Budd. Mm. I think that's what's... Uh, very mm. often in the past, homosexuality has been blamed rather than the repress repression. Yeah. So we've gotten it. Yeah. And you know, we naturally, uh, your book, just talking about it and what you've discovered, could, we could go on, of course, for hours. And uh, toward the end in this fifth sequence called Love, 1779. Six, six, sixth. Yeah. There's uh, Dorothy Thompson, the correspondent, and love for the German woman, Krista Winslow, though Dorothy Thompson was married to Sinclair Lewis. Yeah. The idea is you're talking here of almost a creative kind of feeling, too. Well, uh, that Dorothy Thompson's diary shows that this heterosexually identified woman um, felt passionately about this other female author and wrote in her diary about it. And it shows her struggling with the uh, sort of typical Freudian put-down which she had heard of lesbianism. And yet her own feelings, she talks uh, about this incredible, this is a quote, her, this incredible feeling of sisterhood. That's what well, I suppose that's best, but we're talking an another approach, a different approach to sisterhood and brotherhood. Mm -hmm. And mostly we're talking your gay American history. Uh, Jonathan Katz, my guest, Crowell, the publishers, it's available. You're really talking about awareness of us as humans. That's what it's really all about, and mm -hmm. a certain kind of liberating impulse mm -hmm. and a that's liber been repressed. A liberating 
struggle to, to change certain really mm. repressive institutions, mm. not only attitudes, mm. but institutions like some of the churches, some of the police forces that are really repressive today in 1977 to lesbians and gay men. Jonathan Katz, thank you very much. Thank you.